This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the busy weekend of award shows in both Los Angeles and London with the Critics' Choice Awards, the BAFTA Awards, etc. We're going to hear about Deep Water, the new movie starring Ana de Armas and Ben Affleck, and look ahead at Richard's recap of the 2002 Oscars, an annual tradition here at Vanity Fair. And then at the end of the episode, you'll hear Rebecca Ford with two interviews. She talks to Will Packer, who's the producer of this year's Oscars, and also Raisuke Hamaguchi, the director of Drive My Car. So let's start with this busy weekend uh, that happened in Los Angeles and also in London for the BAFTA Awards. Um, David and Rebecca, you guys were on the ground at so many different events. Uh, So many speeches were made. Schmoozing was done. But I think on Monday, the only thing anyone seemed to want to talk about was Jane Campion's speech at the Critics' Choice Awards. She won Best Director for The Power of the Dog late in the night. And after uh, pausing to appraise Venus and Serena Williams, who were sitting near the front for King Richard, uh, she kind of turned back to them and said, Venus and Serena, you're such marvels. However, you don't play against the guys like I have to. Uh, she had been referencing the fact that she was nominated against all other men in her category. Um, Rebecca, in your report from the event, it seemed like no one in the room really gave that much of a second thought. But the The uh, outrage on social media was pretty swift because Venus and Serena have been compared to male players throughout their career and also as black women have faced kind of undeniable hurdles in the world of tennis as King Richard covers very well. So by midday Monday, Jim Campion had apologized, um, saying, I made a thoughtless comment equating what I do in the film world with all that Serena Williams and Venus Williams have achieved. And she continues on from there. So I guess the question is, what happens next? You know, um, as you're saying, Katie, it's interesting because in the room and then at the after party, which was thrown by Netflix, there was no discussion about this moment because I don't think in the room anyone realized, obviously, that it was going to sort of explode on social media. And so it was completely celebratory and it just felt like such a big night for Jane and such a big night for that film. When I came home after the party, I was sort of shocked to see that it had become such a highly criticized comment. And so when I was leaving that party, I was like, this is it. You know, Power of the Dog is now feels like very much the front runner for picture. Jane is a lock for director. And I do think that this comment now that she has apologized um, and, and sort of seeing how our news cycles work these days uh, won't really hurt her chances for director at all. I really do feel like she's got that locked up. I mean, picture is more up in the air, but, you know, to me, it feels like it's still very much a, a front runner. 
Well, David, you, I think, had been watching her speech at the Critics' Choice Awards in the context of the speech she had given the night before at the DGA Awards, which was really similarly rambling. And also, she spent a bunch of time talking about someone completely unrelated to her movie. In that case, it was Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, but that was like a, that was a really triumphant night for her at the DGAs on Saturday. Yeah, the, the whole weekend was what I was expecting to be Power of the Dogs kind of anointing in this race, something we'd been waiting for for a long time. And it's exactly what happened all of those wins were, if not assured, likely. Um, and, and taken together, they made an incredibly strong statement and really left no other contender as a seemingly viable challenger um, by winning BAFTA, Critics' Choice, and DGA. Yeah, at the DGAs, it was her night. Uh, I got there pretty early, and I had a surprisingly good seat, which doesn't always happen at these things. And I saw Jane right in front of me have a very intimate one-on-one with Catherine Bigelow, and she went right from her to Chloe Zhao. Um, And they all, you know, everyone just seemed to gravitate towards her in that room because it was all, it was a three and a half hour show that was going to build toward her big moment. Uh, And indeed it did. And yes, she, after many others had talked about Jane Campion very effusively, like Maggie Gyllenhaal or Steven Spielberg got an enormous amount of um, tributes up on stage from various nominees and winners. Um... It was, it was, I think she wanted to even the, the field a little bit. So she just talked about how Paul Thomas Anderson is someone she idolizes for like 10 minutes. And it was lovely and sweet, but it was very obviously off script. And at times she could kind of get a little stuck on a word. And um, that's how she is. I've interviewed her a couple times and she's off the cuff in a way that can be very appealing. But also, I think. <laughs> Now people are going to be a little bit on the edge of their seat, or maybe she'll just come in with written speeches for the future. That might <laughs> yeah. be the, that might be the better option. It'd be kind of a bummer if her Oscar speech winds up being very like stiff and practiced because I think she has learned that speaking off the cuff can really court danger. You know, I, I like that she gets to be kooky, even if you know, obviously it didn't it didn't really pay off on Sunday night speech. <laughs> Indeed, it did not. I mean, I think it's I think I agree with you guys that the power of the dog is still in a really strong position, especially just for so many victories that it had over the weekend. But I wonder about King Richard's status after all this. I mean, Venus and Serena were such stars at the Critics' Choice Awards. Rebecca, you said they were the biggest stars in the room by far, you know, sitting at the table with Will Smith, who, as he you know, he's now made a pattern of making his acceptance speeches about them and about Anjanou Ellis and everybody else. So what do you you think King Richard's getting a boost from all of this, too? I do. I think it's the one... For me, at least, it has been for a couple weeks now. Just has the the right um, mix of things to play spoiler. Um, we've talked a lot about Coda, which did win a very surprising and maybe telling BAFTA Adapted Screenplay Award uh, over the weekend. But King Richard is nominated for editing. It won an Editing Guild Award. It has an acting lead winner locked up. Um, and there's just a lot of goodwill for it right now. Yeah, I think, you know, as you were saying... The fact that Serena and Venus are coming out for it does really help the film a lot. I mean, they by far were the biggest stars in the room. And and from what I understand, you know, they're really willing to promote the film as much as they need to. And, and Will gives really strong acceptance speeches. He mostly, you know, highlights his co-stars. And at the Critics' Choice, it was a lot about Serena and Venus in his speech. So I think he's really helping push the film up as well as as his, at this point, locked win for, for Best Actor. Yeah. 
He had this great moment in his speech where they started trying to play him off at the Critics' Choice Awards. He said, mm-hmm. like, I think the best actor should get more time. And then had that, like, <laughs> classic Will Smith laugh where, you know, like, the, the I'm on top of the world laugh. And it was so, like, just such a huge moment of star power. Um, and how could you not want to watch that repeated again at the Oscars, yeah. which I, yeah. I think we all think will. Um, Rebecca, there was another listener question about the Critics' Choice Awards and um, what happened in the room when they just, like, rattled off eight winners before commercial breaks, um, including one for Paul Thomas Anderson. I think nothing, right? Like, it just was on the screen and then they just moved on, right? Yeah, I don't know. At home, did they say, like, they read them to the audience or it was just... Yeah, it was like a screen with a voice talking. Okay, so we didn't have the voice. So you had to like look at the screen. Oh, wow. Obviously, <laughs> as as you were, basically it was a screen and then a little green box went over with whichever one won. And so, and then people applauded, you know, obviously some of those people in the room and were just as excited and surprised. Um, and, you know, they've done it. They obviously can't put all their awards on television because there are so many. Um, but I, I, I was disappointed, especially that um, when Licorice Pizza won for comedy film, that wasn't, uh, that could have been a moment for Paul Thomas Anderson to speak. And I feel like we haven't gotten to hear him do many acceptance speeches. So I, I would have enjoyed that moment. I think the film would have benefited from that. Um, and I also thought, obviously, screenplay was sort of a weird choice to not air yeah. live um, because it is. I don't know, a very important category. Not that the rest aren't, but, you know, they did Best Young Actor, which is obviously an adorable moment, and I would never want that <laughs> not to happen. But Alan Kim showed up for a reason, and it was to present that category. Oh, my God, is he the cutest. So, yeah, it felt a little disappointing to just see them kind of on a screen uh, instead of getting a real moment. Um, but I guess that's the way it has to be done. It, it was interesting how weighted it felt toward the TV side at times. I mean, Mm. it was probably at least two-thirds of the ceremony because, I mean, I remember past um, shows where supporting TV categories, some of them would be off telecast. But here, there were a lot of TV actors who were on stage and the film actors were all kind of shoved into the first half of the show, which I thought was quite bizarre. I figured that had to be because of the bat, because a bunch of them were in London, right? Like, and it was late there, and yeah. they were like, "All right, we need yeah. the category with Lady Gaga in it to be over, so she can go home." <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably. Even though all the winners ended up being either in MIA or in LA, so I think. Yeah. Or no, I guess Kotzer and Debose were in London. Yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. I'm thinking yeah. at the lead ones because the supporting ones always happen early. But yeah, it, it was it, it was it had this weird feeling of major film categories not being even presented. And there was that one reaction shot of Paul Thomas Anderson, like, oh, <laughs> when, when the movie, I guess when the box was circled, because you guys couldn't even hear yeah. his name announced. Whereas you had so many shows that in many cases have already had their moment this season, like Ted Lasso had all its actors on that, on this get their stage moment again. And Gene Smart got her moment again. And, and it, was, it was weird balance. And I guess it's just the nature of, timing of these um, particular shows. Yeah, yeah I, I do wonder if they were banking on the fact that a lot of the TV actors could be there in L.A. other than Ted Lasso cast, um, you know, while a lot of the film actors were either in London or just not, didn't come. So, like, you know, Gene Smart was obviously in the room and and that made for a, a better moment in the room because obviously when people are winning in London, the L.A. room is kind of just like a little cooled off. So... Yeah, but I, I do agree with you. It did feel very heavy on TV. 
Uh, well, speaking of winners who weren't there, Richard, did you watch Jessica Chastain's selfie mode, uh, wine glass in hand uh, acceptance speech? And do you think she's got this whole thing locked up? Yeah, I mean, I, I was out of town with some friends and then I think we were possibly on our way back when we found out she won or something. I don't know. Anyway, it was just a, a lot to process it in one moment. But You um, remember where you were the moment you knew that Jessica yeah, Chastain won? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess because throughout that weekend we were talking about the Oscars and, you know, because I do this podcast, they were like maybe very, very mildly turning to me as the the one with the somewhat, you know, the edge on in terms of knowledge. And I, I was like, I guess given all that's in front of us, yes, it's Chastain. I will say about that video though, she said she was having dinner, drinking wine. She had like a work early the next morning. And then she said she was going to drink more wine and that just made me nervous. So I was like, no, I don't, if you have to be at work early, celebrate, <laughs> celebrate another time. We've all been there before. Don't do it to yourself. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. She's 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 been handling this very well, you know. Um, and I think something I said a couple of weeks ago about other people in her industry kind of relating to the her excitement and um, you know, especially for a passion project that she's worked on for a decade. Like I think all of that really works in her favor. Um, and now that when the you know the Oscar voting is opening, all of that stuff I, I would imagine will be top of mind. Whereas other contenders have been a bit more silent because they haven't won and had the chance to do speeches, but also just like aren't as, you know, sort of out there uh, talking about this season, which, you know, Chastain seems more than willing to, but not in a sort of overbearing way. Why do you think Jessica Chastain can do it, but Kristen Stewart, who is absolutely everywhere and looked great at the Critics' Choice Awards, uh, can't get that bump? I mean, Kristen Stewart is at things, but that doesn't mean that she's, you know, she's not like posting fun wine videos, <laughs> you know, not, but I think, I think, you know, kind of just, very lightly going back to what we started talking about at the top of this episode, like, I still don't know. And I can't tell how much of these awards bodies are paying attention to what's happening online positively or negatively. You know, from my Mm -hmm. perspective, it seems like, oh, Chastain's everywhere and Kristen Stewart's nowhere. But from people who are in town in LA going to these events, Kristen Stewart is also everywhere, maybe more than Chastain, because Chastain's, you know, on set in North Carolina. So the one thing we can look at is like kind of common ubiquity is the internet, Twitter and Instagram and stuff. But I just don't know how many people are paying attention to that. I mean, you know, from my perspective, a few years ago, there was no way in hell the Green Book would win because it would be such, you know, it was, you know, the movie didn't deserve it. And it was bad optics and, and it won. And, you know, maybe the things have changed in the past couple of years, um, which is certainly possible. But um, yeah, so in terms of at least like how an actor's chances are helped by them being um, effusive and charming online, uh, I don't know. It's a big question mark for me. I would assume with the younger members, that is a possibility. Yeah, I was um, I was texting with uh, Joanna Robinson, former host of this podcast, about the Jane Campion thing. And she pointed out that uh, another former host, Mike Hogan, used to always say that Oscar voters aren't on Twitter. And it's probably not as true as it was five years ago, just because of the way that the Oscar voting body has changed. Hopefully more of them are not joining Twitter because that's a waste of everyone's time. Um, but I do think that there are probably more people who are voting for Oscars paying attention to this stuff. Yeah. And I think also Chastain, like, um, there are several people who nominated for Best Actress who would be sort of cool or exciting or new or whatever. But like, it just feels like, you know, I'm so I'm, we'll get to it in a bit, but I'm watching, you know, the 2002 ceremony for a post for work. And like, you, you can even tell in that room, like in those rooms, watching it back 20 years later, like, there's just that sense of like, oh, it's their moment. This is their time. Yeah. This is the momentum. Not that Chastain's been in the industry for 30 years. There just something seems to have coalesced around her in the last few weeks that like, this is her year because of vague, ineffable circumstances. 
partly owed, obviously, to the work, which is, you know, a, a huge act of transformation, which often does well at the Oscars. So that's just the energy I'm feeling is that that sense of occasion for her and not really anyone else in, the, in her category. She occupies a unique space in the category because you have three former winners and you have Kristen Stewart, who is a first time nominee as the only uh, representative of her movie, um, which was mm-hmm. not otherwise particularly well liked. Um, whereas at least with Tammy Faye, it got that hair and makeup nomination. You know, we always forget that being the Ricardos didn't even make the hair and makeup long list with the Academy, um, which to me, there's a, there is a lot of significant overlap with those biopic performances and how that branch votes like Judy was nominated and on and on. So I think you have a sense of Jessica Chastain filling that biopic slot too, in a way that maybe we thought Kidman would, uh, that, mm-hmm. that seems to be the choice in that lane. I still don't feel comfortable ruling out Cruz or Stewart because that's just a much more Academy-friendly lane that hasn't been tested as much. Like, the Critics' Choice are a more populist organization than perhaps their name would indicate. Um, You know, and I think that I I always maybe gravitate towards more of an art house contender than they tend to honor, so I I thought Kristen Stewart might pull it off there. But there is still a chance for, for that race to get shaken up. But uh, it does feel like Chastain has all of the elements in her favor right now. So it'll what be would hard. she get up though? Like, is there anything coming between now and the end of voting? Like PGA, but that's not relevant to the best. Actress. I don't think it, it's not a momentum shift. It would be something within the academy that we can't pick up on. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like Olivia Coleman beating Glenn Close. I mean, it's just sure. a different kind of membership uh, going in the race, actually being somewhat close going in a different direction. I'm not currently predicting that, but I also feel like the fact that there has been such divergence in the nominations from ceremony to ceremony indicates there's not a lot of consensus. Maybe there is around her now, but beyond her, it's been so scattered that it's it's hard to say it's locked down just yet. I, I mean, you know, this is all complete conjecture, but like, you know, we've talked about it had probably ad nauseum on this podcast, so I shouldn't bring it up again, but with the close thing, at least the one or two Academy members I spoke to that year, there was this assumption that Glenn Close was going to win. So I'll just throw a vote to my my little pet choice, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you'd asked anyone who voted for Olivia Coleman or anyone else but Glenn Close, should Glenn Close have an Oscar and would you be happy for her if she won? Everyone would say yes. Yeah. And so they, they felt comfortable that she was going to win. And then the voting just didn't add up. That's my theory. Who knows what actually happened? Maybe well, no that's what we think wife, happened you know. with Chadwick Boseman and Anthony Hopkins, too, right? Right, right. And so, but this year is different, in, or at least Best Actress is different, because there, I don't think there is that common assumption for anyone. And so yeah. it, it, it won't be about sort of a sort of passive, oopsie, I thought that person was def- definitely going to win. Um, it'll be like people actually like more actively, like it's, it's more of a horse race than it is um, a, a coronation that goes awry. Mm-hmm. You do make me wonder, Richard, if one of the other categories that we now feel is so locked could could <laughs> oh have that God. happen instead and all our heads will explode again. So, yeah, yeah, that was a topic of conversation this past weekend, too. I, I'm assuming you mean best actor. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I think that the, the, the conclusion I came to with that, whereas, you know, Coleman had some some juice. And I remember, you know, when I saw the favorite at Telluride or something, the big chatter was she's definitely going to win supporting actress. And then they shifted her into lead. And so that kind of confused things. I think she would have absolutely won. She, you know, she wanted, uh, she wanted Venice, right? 
so she had that momentum. But in the case of Best Actor this year, Smith v. You know, four other people, I don't really see who beats him. You know, yeah. I guess Cumberbatch, but like I don't. There's not someone else who's really like nipping at his heels. In, in, in at least from my vantage point, because if, if Cumberbatch couldn't beat him at BAFTA. Right. I don't know how yeah. you would beat him with the Academy. Because Olivia Coleman did w- beat Glenn Close at BAFTA. And mm. Anthony Hopkins did beat Bozeman at BAFTA. That's usually where you spot that momentum and also where it signaled the Academy voters who were harder to gauge, who were not in this in this country, um, yeah. where their heads are at. Because they do have a slightly different preference a lot of times. Well, and also, as I was saying earlier, it feels like the the energy with Will Smith is there. Like, and not that yeah. people weren't excited for Glenn Close when she won, but like when Will Smith gets up on that stage, it feels right. Like, if people people feel really excited for him. Like, those pieces seem to be in place. And hopefully, in hindsight, I don't look back and think like, ah, you were crazy. But it feels right <laughs> now. And King Richard had lo- has lots of other nominations, whereas the wife had yeah. none. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And Ma Rainey was a movie that had been nominated for Best Picture by almost every group except the Academy. Um, so you could also get a hint there that the Academy didn't love the movie as much as others. That's like you're being the Ricardo's hint where it kind of underperformed except for the acting nominations. Um, well, I mean, at BAFTAs in the supporting categories, Ariana DeBose and Troy Kotzer both also seem to cement that they're front runners. Does anyone want to speculate about there being some other wild twist for them or do they feel super duper locked? Super duper locked to me. Super duper locked. Yeah. They're so good at these speeches too. (laughs) Like every time they're in front of a microphone, it's, uh, they, they nail it. Yeah, they both do a really good job of the way they capture being so grateful to be nominated again when like they're literally winning prizes with two prizes within 24 hours. But it (laughs) it always feels so fresh for them. And I realize they're actors, but it does it does feel genuine. And I I think, yeah, I think their speeches are only helping their now locked uh, wins. Yeah. And and in Kotzer's case, interviews, you know, I think if Academy members are, are paying attention to that stuff, like he has said, like, if I don't win, it's okay. I still made history. Like, this is still a big deal. My name is in those record books forever, all that stuff. So I think he is, and I don't think he's saying it cynically. It could be read perhaps a little cynically uh, on the part of, you know, an Academy member as like, oh, so, so like, he understands that this award itself really means something. And, you know, so, so who am I to deny him, you know, and, and us that moment, you know, he, he, he's framed it, I don't think deliberately, but as like, it's not a sort of, it is a career referendum in a way, but it's really just about like getting that stamp on you know the, the industry, I guess. And I think that that's something Academy members really, really can you know vibe with because they like to make that kind of history and they like to make that kind of statement when they can. One more question about winners from the weekend. Um, we had a listener ask about uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, which won the Annie Award as well as the Critics' Choice Award uh, for animated feature. BAFTA went to Encanto, um, which I think I asked a couple weeks ago if it was locked in, um, and you guys all said yes, and that it was crazy. But now, does Mitchells versus Machines, uh, a movie that I, I love and wrote about this week, um, do you guys think it stands a chance to come in from the outside and uh, and win? Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I did look to BAFTA as the sort of indicator of maybe a, a momentum shift, but they did stick with Encanto. Um, so that I, I was all I was all in on that on Friday and then or Saturday, whenever that was. And then that kind of quelled my enthusiasm a little bit. So I'm yeah. still feeling Encanto, but definitely a, a strong second, cha- a strong challenger has emerged. You know, as we've said, the Critics' Choice voting body is so different than the Academy that yes, I just don't know uh, if 
I, I'm still with Encanto as well. And, and Mitchell's was one of those ones that was announced with a card on the screen at Critics' <laughs> Choice. So True. they didn't even get a moment to like accept the award, which was kind of a bummer. Uh, yeah. So it didn't really help boost their um, chances there having that spotlight either. I did look back at the track record of the Annie Awards uh, matching up with the Academy. They do, they are in lockstep most of the time. Like in 2019, Klaus won, uh, when at the Oscars, it was Toy Story 4. So I think Annie can go a little bit like hipper or like more unexpected yeah. than the Oscars do in the end, um, which may be what winds up happening with Mitchell's. Um, but, you know, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won there and then won the Oscars. So anything's possible. Uh, well, Richard, you you teased your 2002 Oscar flashback, which we'll get to in a second as we dig back into Oscar land. Um, but I wanted to detour for a little bit and talk about Deep Water, uh, which stars this up-and-comer named Ben Affleck, um, mm. who I haven't read much about in the news lately. I don't know what he's been up to. Um, how How is Deep Water, a movie I personally am very much anticipating? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I think that that... It's based on a Patricia Heisman story. It's directed by Adrian Lyne. It's his first film since Unfaithful, so in 20 years. Uh, you know, he was at one point the master of the sort of prestige erotic thriller uh, between that and Fatal Attraction and I guess, Nine and a Half Weeks. And uh, uh, yeah, so it has this kind of interesting pedigree. It also, of course, has running tandem with that, this celebrity narrative of Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas. He established She a Rising Star. I think met on while filming it. It's a very sexy, sort of seductive, but also dangerous film, you know, the sort of energy passing between them that, you know, you watch it and you're like, well, no wonder they fell into bed together or, or fell into in love with each other because they, they have to have so much chemistry to sell the movie. Uh, you know, so th that narrative is inescapable when watching the movie, but that, that kind of adds to the fun almost to the extent that one could get a little tinfoil hat and be like, was this all, you know, a sort of marketing <laughs> ruse? But that which which then kind of crumbled when the movie was you know was its release was delayed and it was punted to to Hulu. But if you strip that away, there is still an interesting movie there um, about, I guess, infidelity. But really, uh, the way that the movie's framed, it takes place in New Orleans. It's all the, these rich, idle adults. There there are so many party scenes in the movie, which I guess is a reflection of maybe sort of mid century Highsmith era. Uh, upper class socializing, it, the, but the way that it's translated into the here and now is 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 kind of almost satirical. Like, look at all these rich idiots, and they can't help but just you know screw around and and you know wreak havoc in each other's lives. And um, uh, I think you know, as he proved in Gone Girl, Ben Affleck is really good at communicating a certain energy around that. Um, mm. And then Ana de Armas, who we've seen do sort of guileless innocent in Knives Out and then really fun kind of almost cultish kid-like uh, super spy in uh, No Time to Die. This is another interesting version of her as a performer. And yeah, so I liked it. I mean, the ending kind of falls apart a little bit. There's a When it, when it gets more thrillery, it almost seems a little bit deliberate, un, you know, not deliberately funny, like it's funny by accident. But I, I, I dug it. I, I think a lot of people will will feel differently and kind of write it off as a misfire. But I think there's something interesting in there. Do you think that Ana de Armas is finally going to start having her moment? Like maybe not through this and, and Blonde coming up seems like a real, um, who knows what to expect from that movie, honestly. Um, but, you know, she was so good in No Time to Die. And I think she still has this, all this goodwill, despite, you know, her career has just really gotten sidelined by COVID through no fault of her own. Like, is this the beginning of her really climbing up that hill? I mean, I wonder, I, I think that this movie, Deepwater, has potential, you know, I, I say punted to Hulu, but like, I don't know how theatrically, even in the best of times, it would do in 2022, because 
you know, we just, that's not what people tend to go out to theaters for, um, those kind of adult dramas, unless they have a dog in them. Um, actually, there, <laughs> unless it, it, there unless is, it's a titled dog, actually. Is I think the there is part. a dog. There is a dog in this. A really cute dog, actually. Yeah. So maybe that'll Does help. Does the dog but, live? Is that a spoiler? I, this I is can't important spoil to anything. a lot of people. Okay. Yeah, I right. can't spoil anything. I, but I think, don't, don't worry. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, I think on Hulu, you know, on streaming where it's just available for the kind of hungover Sunday watch or the fun cozy on the couch Friday night watch, whatever. Like, I think it will play well in that arena because the, it lowers the stakes of the movie. You know, you're not uh-huh. you're not it's you're not making it a night out. It's just kind of a casual thing in the way that a lot of Netflix, you know, thrillers, which are far, far worse than Deepwater is, do really well because it's just, you know, it's it's junk food. Um, I don't think Deepwater is junk food. I think it's a little higher than that. But so maybe it could do good things for to Armis. Um, she certainly acquits herself well in it. It's not um, in any way like I don't see it as marring her sort of actor profile. I think it only deepens it and and makes me more intrigued to see more from her. And specifically made me really intrigued to see her Marilyn Monroe, which at the outset felt like a very strange bit of casting. But now having watched this movie, I'm like, I, I, there is a certain je ne sais quoi that she seems to have in common with it with with a public image of Marilyn Monroe if not the person herself who you know very few of us alive actually knew but yeah I'm intrigued I keep hearing things about Blonde like Netflix is doing film deals in France so they can put it in Cannes also I hear Netflix wants to dump Blonde because it's the worst movie ever made you know I I really have no idea where that movie's at um but uh after watching Deepwater I'm that much more eager to see what it is I mean, what an exciting thing to look forward to, like a, a movie with a big star in it that we have no clue what to expect. Like 2022 has mysteries in store. So, Richard, this week you're publishing uh, one of my favorite pieces that happens every year that you, you've been doing masochistically. Is this your eighth year recapping my the ninth. 20-year-old Oscar? Oh, my God. <laughs> my ninth. Yeah, because this is my eighth year at VF. So, I guess, yeah, so I guess the math adds up there somehow. Yeah, because you were, you know, when we started doing this, I guess in 2014, you know, we were stretching back to Oscars from when we were fairly young and like had kind of big memories. And now you're in 2002. Like, I remember the 2002 Oscars very well. Um, People can read your recap by the time this airs, but uh, how's it it coming along so far? Well, it's a bear. I mean, I knew that this was lurking out there somewhere. I just didn't remember what exact year it was. But hey, ding, 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 I hit I hit um, the jackpot. This is the longest Oscar ceremony ever. <laughs> wow. It is the 74th Academy Awards, which were on March 24th, 2002, were wow. four hours and 23 minutes long. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, my God. And I, I'm about halfway through. And, you know, the process is, it. I mean, it took me... 10 hours to get halfway through because I'm making gifts and I'm writing and I'm trying going back and try, you know, it, it's, it's a labor intensive process that probably wouldn't be quite as labor intensive if I were at all computer savvy in terms of how to make gifts and stuff. Um, but I, I'm, I'm struggling through, but anyway, like it, you know, it's the first ceremony post nine 11. And so they have to address that. Um, you know, Tom Cruise comes out of the top of the show quite famously and ends, you know, his, his little speech with, um, so pull up a couch. It's just us talking. It's Oscar night. And it's the most self-serious, ridiculous thing, but it's kind of great <laughs> at the same time. Um, and there are moments like that peppered throughout. Whoopi Goldberg is the host, and they really put her to work. I mean, she is she's introducing every Best Picture nominee. She's 
you know, doing other things that are normally, you know, given out these days to a different presenter. Um, there is montage after montage after montage after Cirque du Soleil performance. I mean, and I, I am I am two hours into this show and I have not gotten to a single original song performance yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like a beast of a show. Um, and, you know, I think the interesting thing about that was, you know, 46 million people watch probably hundreds of millions the world over. This is, at le- or at least, let's say, Nash, you know, US, so the 46 million, this is ABC just squeezing every last drop they can, maybe still running on that Titanic high from a few years prior uh, in terms of getting advertising dollars. But I also think that because it was post 9 11, they wanted to do a show of strength. And also, I mean, they couldn't have predicted this when they were putting the show together, but probably as it reached the end date, they had Sidney Poitier getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. They had Denzel Washington with a strong Best Actor chance. Halle Berry with a strong Best Actress chance. Will Smith was also nominated. Whoopi Goldberg was hosting. In fact, she had, you know remarks on it several times throughout the show that, like, at least in the context of 2002, it was a very black Oscars, you know, or at least had compared to how it had been for many, many years prior. Um, so there was this really big sense of occasion circling the show from different angles, and then the length just kind of further emboldens that. That said, when you're in the middle of it, in the weeds, it feels like it's never going to end and it feels terrible and I hate it. Um, especially <laughs> because you, you know, in, in normal years, and I, this is no knock on these actors who I, I think are both terrific and loved, you know, when they pop up and things, but like, you have just like really not great or inspiring speeches from the supporting actor winners, Jim Broadbent and Jennifer Connelly. And usually we can cling to those, like one starts to show off well, and then maybe a third of the way through, we get another one and it's a little something to cling to. Uh, In this case, that's not happening. It's just a lot of, uh, their speeches are kind of dull. And then it's great to see all these Kiwis and Australians and whoever like winning for Fellowship of the Ring. But those speeches get kind of repetitive because it's the same thank yous. And then you have Moulin Rouge giving the same thank you. I mean, Catherine Martin, like won for both costume design and art direction. And so you're getting a lot of the same speeches and it just starts to be your eyes kind of cross. Um, and I'm, you know, desperately searching for, for funny things to give, which luckily there are because there are fun people in the audience. Are you saying you support cutting eight categories from the Oscars because uh, these people are too boring? Is that what you're trying to tell us? No, I mean, I go so, I don't want to cut categories. Certainly not that, but I go so back and forth because like, on the one hand, the montages are fun, but then when you have like your, you know, hour and 45 minutes in and you've they've only given out like so many awards and then they're like, here's Donald Sutherland because he and Glenn Close were announcing the show. So here's oh, right. Donald Sutherland. They were Sutherland. like literally backstage, yeah. weren't they? They were doing the P- Peter Coyote thing. Yeah. That's so um, wild. And then they sent them out into little remote things once in a while. So here's Do- Donald Sutherland in a balcony introducing someone who's then going to introduce something and then there's a montage i mean it all everything takes so much longer than it needs to why is i mean john williams was conducting he was nominated twice that night but like why there was just there's just a random salute to film composers that goes on and on and it's like we've heard the star wars music before we've heard the jaws music before like what are we doing um why is cirque du soleil just they're not i thought they were going to be doing the original score nominees oh no no it's just it's just Cirque du Soleil with clips of movies behind them <laughs> for no reason. I mean, they were hot back then, I guess. And they're really cool. It's, they're good at it. But like, you know, so I, I get a little bit miserly, I guess, with that stuff where I'm like, OK, we could pair that away while keeping all the categories and some of the silliness that we, you know, I think have long enjoyed about the Oscars. I mean, it's interesting because for those of us who are going to go to the show this year, we're going to be sitting in that theater for at least four hours and 23 minutes because yep. there's that yeah. additional hour that we have to be there. So 
I'm looking forward to reading this piece to know what it feels like to sit and watch <laughs> Get ready a show for four hours and 20 You know, there's a funny thing where, nor, you know, I said there are good people in the audience, but and maybe I'm just remembering wrong. I went back and looked at some past recaps, and I, I kind of think that I'm onto something. There are just far fewer cuts to the audience then mm-hmm. you know like because normally Wh- whoopi or whoever's hosting makes a joke and it'll cut to, i mean that happens in the opening monologue but later in the show when she comes out and does like two jokes before introducing someone there, there's no cuts to anyone in the audience there during the speeches there are fewer i kind of think that was because people were really getting up and walking around because they yeah. Whoop- whoopi warns several times this is going to be a really long show and people have that huh. program and they're like it is you know 7 p.m. and we haven't gotten to like a screenplay award yet. Um, I bet you that uh, it was a lot of seat fillers, and 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 so maybe that's the trick, Rebecca, is to get up and move around while still also you know um, paying attention so you can <laughs> write about it. Rebecca, they're going to be cutting to you for your reaction shots a lot during this year's show, so I just need you to be prepared oh, for. Uh, you're, the, you're the Jack Nicholson <laughs> this year. I'll just stand by the bar, wait, wait for Christine Lady to appear. Um, and just if anyone listening has been reading these recaps for a while, I have really good news for you. Sharon Stone is on that red carpet. So the patron the, the, saint, the, re- the recap starts with maybe five, six gifts of Sharon Stone. I don't she hasn't popped up yet during the ceremony. Oh, no, she has actually. So, no, so she's at she's there throughout. So, you know, if nothing else, we have the queen of the Oscars, Sharon Stone. It's gonna be a real shame when you get to like the late 2000s and she's not there anymore. So well, she had already been gone be for a couple years, and like now ah. she's back, and it's because like w- when I started like 94, 95, 96, she was the queen of the Oscars, and she was so yeah. happy to be there. And as I was, you know, writing that and making those gifts, who did I think of? They're not the same person at all, but in terms of the eagerness to be there, Jessica Chastain. Uh huh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll get to Jessica Chastain's uh, run of Oscars not too long from now, actually. Just hang in there seven more that's years right, that's and you'll right. get yeah, to Yeah, just, the, you know, when health. I'm 55 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Making gifts of the, of the Oscars. <laughs> I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now that we've talked about the perils of a long Oscar ceremony, uh, Rebecca, (laughs) I guess we'll hear your interview with Will Packer, who is the producer of this year's Oscars and is um, one of the people charged with keeping it trimmed down. Um, So, Rebecca, tell us about um, what Oscar producers have to do and what Will Packer is up to this year. Well, I think Will Packer is actually a really um, interesting and exciting producer. I was at the Academy luncheon um, a bit ago, and he you know, obviously made a speech and everyone was talking about his energy and how funny and charming he was. And he had a long shtick about being confused for Will Smith all the time um, that I appreciated. So I think he is going to bring a sense of 
humor to this show that I hope really works, you know, especially with these three hosts we have. Um, but, you know, there's a, there was a lot to talk about because of all the controversies that have been swirling around the category cuts that we've been talking about. So, um, you know, we, we had to get into it and he, he has answers for everything. So I'm, I'm excited to see what he brings to the show. Well, thank you for joining me. The Oscars are just a few days away, so I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Yes, um, 11 days, but who's counting such things? We are yeah, here, yeah. right around the corner. So tell me why you wanted to take this gig. I don't think it's the easiest gig in the world. There's a lot of eyes on you, obviously. So tell me about how you decided you wanted to take this on. Um, not the easiest gig in the world is a tremendous understatement, Rebecca. I'm not going to lie to you. That is, uh, that's one way to put it, you know, because I am fearless about such things because I don't think about all that could go wrong. And I don't think about all the, the pressure and the scrutiny and the, you know, what if people don't like it? I think, what if people love it? I think, wow, what an opportunity I think, uh, you know, about the the amazing responsibility and upside of something like this. That's how I approach it. That's why I did it. Mm -hmm. And so when you first signed on, what did you think were going to be the biggest challenges of making the show this year? You know, getting people to watch. That was always going to be the big challenge. It is it's the show's at a different place than it has been historically. Right. For years. Um, no secret that the, the ratings have dropped off precipitously. And so what that means is that, you know, there's got to be something different this year. There's got to be something different about the show this year that connects with people outside of Hollywood, outside of the industry. You got to connect with the casual moviegoer and casual movie fan in order to hope to get the, you know, you, you, you won't have a return to the days of yore, so to speak, because it's just a different environment right now there's just there's too much competition for eyeballs there's an oversaturation of content access to celebrities is completely different in a social media and digital era than it was you know a decade ago back then you had to watch the show just to see what people were looking like what they were wearing what they were you know what they were doing with their hair now you just you can click online and see what they have for breakfast so it's a different relationship between Hollywood and the consumer audience. But it doesn't mean that we can't succeed in making an entertaining show that gets people outside of the industry, gets people who are fans of the nominated and celebrated movies and also fans of movies that may not, you know, be nominated on the show. We can do it all. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. That's always been one of my goals. And tell me about bringing back hosts, because the last... Last year, we didn't have a host. Why was it um, that you wanted to have one? And, and how did you decide on these three? Yeah, great question. I, I For me, it was essential to have hosts this year. I think that it's not that um, folks didn't try in previous years. But, you know, for me this year, it was essential. In order, this it's a big show. Uh, and it's a long show. And it's a monumental task to guide viewers throughout a narrative, which is what we're doing and creating throughout the show. The show will feel like a movie. It will have various chapters. It will have different thematic looks and sounds. 
and so it won't be just this kind of stagnant, here's the Oscars and this is what the night is going to be. It's going to feel very kinetic. So you need somebody to help guide you through it. And I always wanted multiple people. It was never something that I said, who's my one host? Who's my one person? I always knew that, you know, there have been some amazing singular hosts that have done this throughout the years. But these days, it's a different task. It's a different job, different level of scrutiny, different uh, load to shoulder, if you will. And I always felt like this is something that you need multiple people with a multiplicity of skill sets to do. And the fact that we have three incredible women who are all fiercely funny and fearless uh, with very different styles, it's kind of the perfect scenario. It really is. Having three comedians says to an audience that we're leading with entertainment, that this is going to be a show that's going to be funny. You know, it's going to be there's that that in and of itself gives you another reason to watch. So at first it was being reported that they were going to each host a segment, but the plan is that they are going to be interacting together. Tell me a little bit about that. Exactly. Right. So so throughout the night, the hosts will come in and out organically. There'll be times where they're all three on stage and there'll be times where, you know, there may be individuals uh, or pairings on stage. So it will flow based on the way that the um, the set pieces come together. And we're working on that now with our amazing writing team. So as that comes together, so will the specific determination of how organically they come in and out of the night. And the music performances have always been a highlight of these shows, I think, in the past. What can you say about who's performing? Is there someone that rhymes with fiance performing? What I can say is what an amazing group of nominees we have. That's what I can say. So um, I'm really excited about the fact that we've got these nominees and all of our performances across the show are in process. It's all, you know, it's a live show. And so a lot of stuff comes down. I'm not just talking about musical performances, but just in terms of planning and who you'll see on that stage. Some of that stuff is happening right up until the last and final minute, which can be very nerve wracking, as you can imagine. Um, but that's that's also part of the excitement of doing a live show. And tell me how you're sort of approaching the tone, because obviously there's a lot of serious stuff going on around the world, you know, the pandemic and the conflict in Ukraine. How how do you plan a show in this sort of climate? You know, I, I think that you go in the other direction. I really do. I think that there are a lot of um, a lot of conversations and spaces and platforms that are dealing with one of, you know, the most tumultuous times, especially if you take the last few years in humankind history, right? And there's been a lot of conversation and talk about that. I wanna go in the opposite direction with this show. I want this to be an escape. I think, you know, you asked about tone, fun and celebratory. That's that's what I want it to be. That's the goal and that's what we're going after. So this isn't the show where, um, you know, you're gonna find much in-depth analysis about, you know, all that's going wrong in the world. But I don't think that's why you tune into this show. So we're going to try to make this um, an escape for a little while or a long while, depending on how you look at it, um, from what's happening out there in the uh, in the quote unquote real world. And since you're mentioning um, time, I know obviously there's been a lot of talk about moving eight categories to the pre-show and then editing them into the telecast. Uh, what's your answer to people who are frustrated with this decision? 
Well, you know, at first, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I'm glad you're asking that. Give me an opportunity to clear it up. Um, it's interesting. When I, when I took on the show, one of the things that was said to me by other producers was, whatever you do, try to bring the show in under three hours. Like, no matter what, it's just viewers' attention spans have gotten shorter over the years, and time is always a major issue. Well, I kind of ran in the other direction. I said, well, you know, it may feel counterintuitive, but instead of a three-hour show, I want to make a four-hour show. And that's what we're doing. And so people that say, well, it's not a part of the show, that's not true. It was really important to say this show now, the actual show in the Dolby Theater with our Folks in the audience, hopefully there are people from all the various movies that are nominated, starts an hour earlier. That show now runs from 4 o'clock Pacific, if you're on the West Coast, through whenever it ends. It typically starts at 5. We're starting it at 4. Now, the conversation around what's televised, that's like any other entertainment property. You make decisions about what's kept in, what's kept out, what you edit, you know, what the viewers actually see. The viewers will see every last person who wins an award have their opportunity on that stage in front of their peers that night. There is no taking people off the show. There is no subordination of, of, these, uh, of these awards in any kind of a major way. This is about extending the show so that we can give all these amazing craftsmen and women their due, and they're all going to have it. And so... I appreciate people who are passionate about the show and who have an opinion about, you know, the best way to adjust and change the show. I think changes needed to be made. You got to shake things up. Change is good. Change can be um, can be fortuitous if you do it right. And I think this is the right decision. And there was a report today that Josh Brolin and Jason Momoa are giving out the awards in the first hour. Is that true? And are they giving out the awards for every category or what is the sort of plan for how those are presented? Yeah, I can't confirm that. I can't confirm that. That was a a, uh, a premature report, and I can just tell you that a lot of things are still in process. So that was somebody trying to get a trying to get a jump on information. But oftentimes, when you do that, you don't quite get everything right. So not something that we can speak to yet. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a lot of that, and I I feel for you guys because I feel like you're, as you say, planning this in real time. So to have these things leak early must be. My gosh, this is, this thing leaks like the Trump White House. I mean, there is just every, everybody's got an angle or a story, and I'm hearing things and reading things, and I'm going, that's not how that happened at all. But you know, if a little information is way more dangerous than no information, sometimes. Yeah. Well, talk to me about what was officially announced, the Oscars fan favorite campaign. So what, why do you think is the advantage of doing that? And do you have concerns about something like Army of the Dead, you know, winning this and sort of being sort of a random outlier at the show? This show, let me give just a little bit of context. When I came in, I said that I wanted to make a show that really wasn't just a slogan, movie lovers unite, but that was truly representative of movie lovers, people who truly love and enjoy cinema of all stripes. I wanted to make a show that everyone, whether you are a Power of the Dog or Belfast super fan or a fan of Spider-Man or, you know, Army of the Dead, I wanted to have a show that was for you, that you could come in 
and watch and enjoy. I've always looked at this as an entertainment proposition. And so, as you know, there are a lot of conversations that are being had online all the time anyway around movies and around what was the best performance and what was the best scene and, you know, which director's cut did I like the best, all of that. Well, we said this year we're going to not just sit back and watch those conversations happy, we'll tally them. And we will have an opportunity to have that fan perspective on the show. And it's okay that it's happening on a social media platform. That's where real people are. That's where real people are interacting. That's where real people are, you know, voicing their opinions. It's not an Oscar and it's not an award. It's really just an acknowledgement. And to me, that's a good thing. You know, it's, it's, this show doesn't have to be something that is just all entertainment with no, you know, reverence for the 23 awards that will be given out throughout the evening. It also doesn't have to be something that's just all awards bereft of entertainment that is just all about, you know, these amazing artists and craftspeople. We can do both. We can do both and we're going to do both. And that was always the plan. So that makes sense. And I, I, I do think that finding that balance is, is the greatest challenge of this show. But what has to happen for you to deem this show a success when it's all over on the night what is success for you is it entertaining that's what the first thing i'm going to say right there'll be a lot of things that i can i can control and that you plan for but it's you know it's live tv over the course of multiple hours there are going to be things that you have no control over things that you boy i didn't see that happening right and there'll be things after the fact that i'll go man i wish we had done this or oh we should have done this instead but i hope there are more moments of going wow was that a good choice man did that work if the show is entertaining that's the thing i think if you if you look and you say okay i remember the year will packer did the oscars as long as you don't say that it was boring If you don't say that it was boring, then we succeeded. And hopefully along the way of trying to make a truly entertaining show that feels like something that is welcoming to all movie fans, hopefully we will get a few folks to watch and hopefully a few more uh, than have watched in the the past couple years where there's been the steady decline in ratings. Is there anything else, you know, as we're talking about the reports that have been coming out, that you want to clear up about what's been reported um, that was maybe false or the wrong impression of what this show is going to look like? You know, I would just say um, certainly uh, there is no issue from an execution standpoint with the way that we plan to showcase all the awards. Everybody's going to have their just due in the show. We've extended the show. The first hour of the show is still very much a part of the show, but we have to think about the televised portion of the show differently. But even in the televised portion, you'll hear every nominee's name and every nominee will give a speech and it will be a celebratory night first and foremost of those people. You know, I've read things about, you know, host conversations that I purportedly had with certain people. And, you know, it's 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 like uh, casting an ensemble film. I never talk about conversations that I had, but I will always say and I've had some success with some ensemble films that you always end up with the right people. And without a doubt, I feel very strongly that we've ended up with the right people in terms of hosts this year. What is it about their chemistry together or is it their comedy styles that made them the right combination? It's because they've each got different comedic styles. 
they're all fearless, which is so important. To take on this job, you got to be fearless, period. You got to be willing to go out there, put yourself out there, and have fun. The audience can tell when you're having fun. The audience in the theater and the audience at home. And so you got to be able to go out there, put yourself out there, and have fun and be fearless in that way. What makes them work so well together is the fact that they each kind of have their own lane. So you don't have, you know, you don't have three people that all do the same thing. And so it's kind of like, well, which, you know, who, who does who does this bit or this kid or tells that joke? Like it's kind of working out very clearly, organically. OK, we know what lane Wanda's going to be in. We know what Amy's going to do. And now Regina fits in perfectly. Right. And they all three can do a lot of different things, but they each have different perspectives in their approach to comedy. And so that's what makes them fit very well together. They're not stepping on each other's toes. Mm-hmm. Amy Schumer's been talking about how some of her jokes just push it too far and her lawyers have been telling her to cut them down. What what would you say about what she's bringing to the show? The I, show? I, I'd say that's absolutely right. I'd say that's true. <laughs> and I love it. I love the fact that she's coming with more versus less. So she definitely is coming with more. And there's some things that I personally laugh at and I go that's hilarious it'll never make it on an Oscar telecast you know um but the show is about you know having a broad appeal to a broad swath of viewers not just my sensibility and not just hers but I love her sensibility and there are elements of things that she will do which would be very different than what's been done on the Oscar stage before mm-hmm. and personally can you tell me what's been some of your favorite performances when you look at the nominees on this on this list? I don't know how much time you've had to watch all the movies. You've been a little busy, but I assume you've seen something you've loved. I've seen a lot of them. I really have. Um, you know, I don't I try not to in my position get into singling out, you know, individual people or performances. But what I will say is that I'm really looking forward to some folks that have been unheralded who haven't gotten that acknowledgement on this biggest stage. I'm looking forward to some folks like that getting that opportunity this year. I would love that to happen the year that I'm producing the Oscars. And I have to, I mean, you've been such a successful film producer, but obviously this feels like a very different beast. And so I'm curious what you've learned so far from this experience that wasn't something you already had in your tool belt from your other work. I tell you what's interesting. I think that I need time and context to truly answer that, right? Because I'm I'm learning every day. I'm learning like as I'm as I'm on this interview with you, I'm 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 getting text and having messages passed, you know, off camera about things that are changing rapidly with the show, even this close uh, to air date. And that's all part of it. It's all part of, you know, this kind of magical beast as as you called it, which is quite accurate. Um so I'm, I've I've learned a lot, but I'm still learning a lot. So I think that I need time and context to kind of process and sit back and 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 really take it all in and see what what felt major at the time that ultimately wasn't that big a deal and what seemed kind of minor that ultimately turned out to be really huge, you know. And by the way, it's like that on every movie project. Every movie project, there's you know, you're at the eleventh hour, about to start shooting, and ten things go wrong. That's just the nature of the business. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap this up, but I, I really want to give you this moment to tell me something or tease something about this show that maybe hasn't been out there already. Well, I, you know, <laughs> it's hard for me to keep track of what's out there. Here's what I'll say is that 
the the well that's not true i i do i do have a good sense of what of what we've released but there's some stuff that other folks have released that i don't know that i know is out there but what i would say is that um expect to 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 see not all movie people that's what i'd say i'd say um when i say movie lovers unite i mean it and so expect to see people that maybe you wouldn't typically see on an oscar stage but that are cinema lovers because I want to make a show that feels broadly entertaining, not just specifically entertaining to a certain segment or a certain audience. Uh, I want a broad audience. And so you'll see some of the decisions that are made and the way things are being set up that will reflect that. That's what I'd say. That sounds fun and interesting because I do feel like when stars in other fields drop into Hollywood, Hollywood always loves that. You know, we've seen that with uh, Serena and Venus kind of being around this season and everything. And and I think that'll be a, a nice a nice way to make this broader, as you're saying. Good. Well, I got you, Rebecca. I got one vote of confidence. I promise I'll be watching. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's all I need. I just need a few million more, but I got you. So let's start there. And now we're going to close the show hearing from Rebecca again. Um, Rebecca, you got on the line with Raisuke Hamaguchi uh, to talk about Drive My Car. And this is actually the first interview we have done with a translator, which is really exciting because, you know, obviously we have the technology to do it. And Drive My Car is such a huge Oscar movie this year. So uh, tell me what you guys talked about. First of all, he had a wonderful translator, and I think everything went really smoothly with that. Um, he, I mean, he understands English very well. I think it's just more about being comfortable, you know, making sure his points get across. So, but he had a lot to say about. Well, I really wanted to grill him about how much these, the main character in Drive My Car is actually similar to him as a director because mm. his um, rehearsal style is actually very similar to what that director puts his actors through. Um, so he talked a lot about that, but also about how he's much warmer of a person compared to that main character. And we just really dug into the making of this film and, and why he doesn't mind making long films. So uh, I, it was it was a nice chat. I'm so excited to be joined by Rusuke Hamaguchi, the director of the acclaimed and Oscar-nominated Drive My Car. Uh, he's joining us today along with his translator, Aiko Masubuchi. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me here. Very nice to meet you, Rebecca. Nice to meet you, too. I, I would love to hear about how you found out about your Oscar nominations for Drive My Car. Where were you? Um, so I was actually in Paris on uh, my way to the Berlin Film Festival. I was on the plane when it was all announced. I wasn't there to hear it live, but once I got off the plane, I received a lot of messages. So I knew then that something must have happened. But I was really surprised to learn that there were four nominations. And how did it feel? How do, has this whole Oscar journey been sort of unexpected? And, and what did it feel like to receive those four nominations? So it was definitely unexpected. I did not expect something like this to happen at all. At the very least, when I was making this film, it was not something I thought about at all. Um, so it's been a very surprising thing for me. Uh, but as I learn about all the other works that have been nominated for the Oscars, I'm starting to think, wait, I'm nominated with this film? Um, and realizing how amazing of a thing it is. And I think over time it started to feel real, or perhaps it's better for me to say that the feeling of it feeling unreal 
starts to feel real. Um, and so I'm starting to understand that I'm thrown into this amazing thing that's happening. And I'd love to go back to the beginning of making this film. You know, by now we all know it's based on um, a short story. But what was it about that story that you were convinced would make a good film? Oh. As you mentioned, it is a short story by Haruki Murakami. Um, it's an adaptation of a short story by him. The idea to adapt a short story by Haruki Murakami was suggested by my producer, but at the time, my producer suggested a different story, which I felt would be a difficult one to try to attempt. And that's mainly because I feel like Haruki Murakami's world often um, happens on the border between fantasy and reality. Um, but then I remembered that I had read uh, the short story Drive My Car, which I remembered happens mostly in reality, and that there are conversations that happen in a car. And through those conversations, the humanity of the main characters get revealed. And I really liked the protagonists, Kafuku and Misaki, um, in the short story. I think the character Kafuku, also the sound reminds you of, there's another novel by Haruki Murakami called Kafka on the shore. The, the, the character's name Kafuku, there's sort of a sound connection between the character's names. And thinking about that, I felt that Kafka on the shore is probably a, perhaps an important work to Haruki Murakami. And so thinking about adapting Drive My Car, which I felt has a connection with this novel, I felt that it would be a good idea, a good way to sort of adapt and attempt um, adapting Haruki Murakami's world. And beyond the you know main protagonists in this film, Kafuku casts these actors for this play who all speak different languages. So I'm curious how that part of the story affected your own choices when casting the actors that would play those actors. So to even think about doing a play in a film is actually a dangerous thing in some ways because the acting that happens on stage and acting that happens in film can be quite different. Um, for example, when uh, acting on a stage happens, it means that the performance of the actor must be able to be read by um, the audience member in the very back of the room, which can lead to a kind of acting that can feel over the top when it is done in a film. Um, and, and that needs to also be be shown through the bodies of the actors. And so I wanted to figure out a way to have the acting be able to be reacted between the actors themselves as well. And so that's when I really thought about having this play be a multi-language play, because then the actors won't necessarily rely on the words and the meanings, but they would actually have to react to each other and react to each other's bodies um, and to also really concentrate on each other's physical actions. And it was the first time for me to be working in a multi-language form. Um, I had never done this before, um, and this really really kind of was just an idea for me at the very beginning. I didn't know if this idea would actually work out if I really did it. But as I was doing this, I really learned that it's really the same as working in just Japanese in just one language as well. Um, I, it really was about learning to um, like them and learning to know about the actors themselves. And so in the same way that I do when I'm working in Japanese, I just got to know these people and I really cast these people once I knew what kind of people they are, once I knew I really liked these people and wanted to work with them. 
I thought it's an interesting parallel to your film crossing over into Hollywood and American audiences, because when it comes to the Oscars, you know, other than Parasite and a few other films, a lot of films uh, in foreign language have not crossed over to director nomination and best picture. How do you view the significance of this film reaching a global audience? The, the simple answer, to be honest, is that I don't know why or I don't know how I feel about this, because at the end of the day, the film is not necessarily a simple film. It is, after all, a very long film. And yet it has been received so well by so many audiences around the world and so many different countries. It has crossed borders, as you say. And to be honest, when I'm asked why, I almost want to ask you why you think this is happening. I am also thinking about the fact that at the end of the day, this film is a very universal story. I know I said it's not necessarily simple at the beginning, but at the end of the day, what the story is saying at the core and really pushing forward is something that's universal that I think a lot of people can understand. It's really about thinking about how to lead a good life and to lead a good life one must love somebody else. And that's something that I believe everybody wants. And say that you get that, you say that you find somebody that you can love. But as long as that person that you love is somebody else, somebody outside of yourself, then there is always, the universal truth is that there will be a time of separation which also means that whatever it is that gives us the most joy can also give us the most sadness. And the fact that the thing that gives us both of these things is in fact the same thing. And that realization is something that we must all face one day. And I think that's really just a universal fact. And that's also why perhaps the people around the world are reacting to the story. But I think at the end of the day, it also this idea is within Murakami Haruki's world um, and um, it's it's really coming from the original story and I think the universality that exists within Haruki Murakami's story is also what is resonating with people. And um, the main character, Kafuku, is obviously a director and I've heard that your rehearsal style is a bit similar to his. What else do you think you have in common with this main character? It- um, so, as you mentioned, the rehearsal style that Kafuku takes is quite similar to the style that I do. Um, and I think I use this kind of rehearsal style because it's what I believe can draw out good acting from the actors, and that's part of my belief. Um, and so, given that, I felt that it would be a good tool to use, an easy tool to use within the film to have Kafuku do a rehearsal style that I'm also familiar with. But in terms of the character Kafuku and myself as a human being, I think we're very different kinds of people. And I knew I was working with a character that was very different for me, so I needed to sort of figure out a way to understand the character better, to feel that the character is closer to me. And I think in some sense, I'm using a same um, rehearsal style, having this same rehearsal style allows me to connect with the character in this way. But it, at the end of the day, when I compare myself to Kafuku as a character, I'm far more chatty as a person than Kafuku is. Um, and I think I have this desire to want to be more understood than Kafuku tends to be as a character. Um, and I think the way that we both lead our lives is very different. 
And obviously the car is uh, very significant to Kafuku. And I'm curious if it was always going to be a red Saab or if you debated using other cars as sort of that very large symbol in the story. Um, so for anybody who's read the original story, I think they would know that in the original story, the car is actually yellow and it's also a convertible car within, um, without a roof. Um, we actually did go out to try to look at these yellow sobs. But I knew from the beginning that I think it would be difficult to use a convertible without a roof because it would be difficult to record dialogue um, live on set. And to record a live sound on set from the actors is very important to me as a process. And so um, I knew from the get-go that perhaps we would need something with a roof. Um, that all said, we did go out to research these yellow sobs. And we had a coordinator to set this up who could show us different cars that can be used for film sets. But this coordinator came in in this red car, and I was looking at the red car and thinking how cool of a car it is as it came driving towards us. And then when I asked, I learned that this red car was in fact a Saab 900, which is the same type of car in the original story. Um, and to see the way that this red car came driving through and to see how it popped within the landscape, um, it really made me think that this might be a car to use. We did still look at some yellow sobs, but even after looking at these cars, I decided at the end of the day that the correct answer here is to use this red sob. And this film premiered in Cannes almost a year ago now. So you've been talking about this film for almost a year, and I'm curious if you've realized anything new about making this movie as you've gone through this process of talking about it. Um, to be honest, to each time that I have conversations like this, um, I think I have new discoveries. At the end of the day, I think that I realize that this, in fact, is a film with a universal story. And that's something that I've really learned through talking about this film for a year. Um, at the end of the day, when I'm first working on this film or when I'm working on the film and making the film, I'm not necessarily thinking about what kind of film I'm making, what kind of story I'm, I'm necessarily telling. So it's really after talking about it that I really realize what kind of story this is. Um, but. At the same time, as I mentioned, I've, I've been very surprised by the film's ability to cross uh, borders and to reach so many different kinds of audiences, um, cross language borders as well. Um, and it's really through time that I've realized that what kind of film we made, that we made a film that has this ability to cross these borders. And I think at the root of all of this really comes down to the fact that um, to the, the performances by the actors themselves. No matter the language, I think their physical bodies and their voices really resonate and come through through the film. Um, and I believe that, and I, I've really started to reconfirm that what I saw and experienced on set, the wonderful performances that I felt coming from the actors, can actually, in fact, be communicated to other people through the film. And to me, that's also a reconfirmation of the power of film as a medium. And in the next month, you're going to have quite a few events, I think, before the Oscars. I know there's a director panel in Santa Barbara and a few other events. And, and I'm curious, what are you excited about that experience? Are there certain directors you'd love to talk to about their own films this year or other people you'd love to run into? What are you looking forward to about this? 
あのまあ一つ残念なことはこの3月前半。Sadly for me,、um, I needed to be back in Japan for the first half of March due to some work commitments I already had here, and then also due to pandemic restrictions and knowing that I needed to quarantine myself for a little bit,、um, I needed to come back. And so for that reason, for、um, Santa Barbara talk, I'm actually、uh, appearing through a recording. So unfortunately, I'm unable to meet everybody in person. It's very unfortunate for me. But I hope, I very much look forward to meeting a lot of them at the award ceremony.、Um, and when it comes down to thinking about who I'm most excited about, I think at the end of the day, I think I have to say Steven Spielberg.、Um, and I think that really comes down to the fact that as I was really discovering film and my own love for film, Uh, Steven Spielberg was a, a, a big figure already, and his films were always there as I was discovering movies. And so to think about standing on the same stage with him, to be in the same place as him, is quite unbelievable. And I think I'm really trying to bring out a lot of courage and find a lot of courage to be able to talk to him if he's there. I hope you get to. I think you should. <laughs>、um, yeah. And when you look back on this past year, you, you actually released two films, the other being Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And I'm, I'm curious how you look at this point of your career having two films come out in the same year and, and what you think you'll think about this time in your career when you're 80 years old and looking back on it. It has been a very big year for me, for sure. I think there have been very big changes that have happened for me. But when it comes down to thinking about what this all means, I think it'll definitely take me at least a decade to really understand what it all means. But what I have learned is that to release two films in a year is an incredible task and it's a lot of difficulties and hard work.、Um, so I think in the future, I won't be releasing two films in the same year. That makes sense.、Uh, and when speaking of the future, what is next? Do you already know in your mind what the next story you want to tell is at this point?、Um, I'm not sure, to be honest.、Um, I do have some smaller size projects lined up.、Um, I have a documentary idea,、um, as well as I'll be shooting a music video. I have very short things lined up.、Um, and what I'm thinking is that by doing each thing,、um, I'm going to start to see the direction of where I'm headed. I think by doing, that's when I really start to see where I might be headed next. Well, we're all excited to see what's next, and I really appreciate you giving me some of your time to talk about your wonderful film. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with our final show before the Oscars, which, you know what that means? We have to make our Oscar predictions. Not that we haven't been doing that for weeks now, but it's all going to be set in stone next week.、Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at vanityfair.com where you can read Richard's recap of the night of the 2002 Oscars,、uh, David and Rebecca's reports from all these different events happening in LA, and、uh, much more. You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213 401 We are reading all of your texts and love them. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of what Little Gold Men will be pivoting to after the Oscars goes to Richard Lawson. Posting fun wine videos.
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.